Richard, welcome back. This is, I believe, your third appearance on the pod. Right? Uh, let's see. Did Columbo? Columbo. Did, did Network. Network. And then uh, North Dallas 40. Oh, geez. Four-timer. You're the only, you're yeah. the first, first four-time guest we've had. So welcome, my friend. I'm glad to be here. How many before I get the uh, satin jacket? <laughs> Ooh, that's a great idea. Well, the holidays are just around the corner. We'll see. We'll see what comes in. Well, I'm excited to talk Star Trek with you, Rick, not only because I know you to be a lifelong Star Trek fan and expert, I would say, in everything from the original series, certainly at least the next generation, maybe some of the other spinoffs, the movies. And I say surprised in a way because I didn't anticipate going down the wormhole as I did of all things Star Trek, but I've really enjoyed it. I've been reading a couple of really juicy tell-all books, which, uh, you know, one of which is called The 50-Year Mission, which is a oral history of the Star Trek original series, which I highly recommend. It's by Edward Gross and Mark Altman. It's called The 50-Year Mission, The First 25 Years. And there's also a sequel called The Next 25 Years, which covers the next generation and the subsequent movies. And what's good about that is those authors have no connection to the show. They're just interviewing everyone alive at the time, which is all of the cast, Gene Roddenberry, uh, many of the people and the producers involved in the making of the series. And so you get kind of a lot of different perspectives, which is what I particularly like about making of oral history books. And then the one that I'm reading now is an out-of-print book called Inside Star Trek, The Real Story by Herbert Solo or Solow, S-O-L-O-W, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Herbert Solo and Robert Justman, who were both producers on uh, the original Star Trek series. And that is more of an inside kind of show business take and certainly could be accused of maybe having a few more axes to grind as a result. But I think in balance, reading the two of these books has just really hit the sweet spot for me and kind of all the things I love and am interested in about these kind of iconic series. And Star Trek is nothing if not maybe the most iconic TV series that is still going in various iterations. So I was surprised that I got as into all this kind of making of and behind the scenes stuff as possible. And then revisiting a lot of the episodes and now kind of having some of the knowledge of what was going on behind the scenes definitely enriches and rewards my viewing of some of the original series episodes. And as you and I have been joking about on our text thread, uh, I have rewatched most of the original movies, which is also uh, a journey where sometimes few people have gone before. So that's all the background. And I guess we can just jump right in. What episode are we going to talk about, Jason? Well, I, I do want to talk about where no man has gone before, but I kind of want to just jump around and talk about the series in general and maybe some of the movies and uh, just have a Star Trek conversation in general. But we can use that episode as the jumping off point because I think it speaks to a lot of what is essential to the Star Trek narrative and the story in that this was not an easy show to get on the air. It was not a likely show to get on the air. It wasn't successfully got on the air. They had filmed a pilot that the network rejected, which was the episode, The Cage, right? Right, The Cage. And then, and then Lucy 
stepped in. <laughs> well, did she? I, I, this is the other thing that I think is fascinating. You know, you're mentioning Lucy just for the listeners who may not be familiar. And I had forgotten this myself until I got into reading the books. Star Trek was produced by Desilu Studios, which was a legendary and groundbreaking television production facility located right next to the Paramount lot in Culver City, California. And Desi Arnaz Jr. and Lucille Ball, but really Desi Arnaz Jr. uh, was the pioneer in founding this production entity, which in its heyday had a number of series, including all of the Lucy shows. But by the time Star Trek comes around in 1964-65, Lucy and Desi are divorced, although still friendly, and she still calls him for advice on the business. She's running the studio, which has the Lucy show, which was a subsequent Lucille Ball vehicle, and all the rest of the sound stages, and they might have had nine or 12 different sound stages, were being rented to other production companies' series. And in order to kind of reboot the business of the production company, Lucy and the, the board of Desilu Studios had put in place a process to bring new projects in and for them to pitch them to the networks and try to get some series on the air. And famously, the sort of newly hired development executive uh, went to New York and pitched the studios two of the series that they had in development. One was Mission Impossible. The other was Star Trek. It would have been very difficult, if not impossible, for the studio to produce even one of these, given the, the, the state of the studio, the disrepair, let alone the technical aspects of producing both of these shows, both of which had specific requirements in terms of location and heavy makeup use and other things. Now, of course, they sold both and had to figure out how to shoot both. So that's kind of where the Star Trek origin story kind of begins and the Lucy involvement that you reference. What, what is it that you're talking about when you say Lucy stepped in? Oh, well. I think it's a little bit of a joke um, only because you, when you're going back to research uh, facts regarding the early Star Trek series, you just inevitably run into a lot of different points of view, depending on who's being interviewed and quoted. And I guess... <laughs> I guess I'm arguing that it's a little it's a little bit of a joke because it's the most unreliable sources that like to um, uh, hand around the maybe apocryphal f- fact that Lucy liked Gene Roddenberry and she insisted um, that the, that another pilot get made. But whether it's true or not. I don't know. It makes it makes Lucy look like a hero, but I don't necessarily. And, and it also is it's fun from a, uh, a, you know, a trivia level to connect Lucy to Star Trek. But I don't necessarily believe it. Well, I think it's it is interesting. And, I, you know, I think there's a forthcoming Aaron Sorkin, Lucy, Desi Lu series coming out, which I'll be interested I'm not interested to see it because I'm not an Aaron Sorkin fan, but I will be interested to see if some of the truth that I think I've been able to glean from at least the two books I've read about the making of Star Trek, which have, which have a lot of Desi Lu kind of backstory and information in them. I'm, I'll be curious to see how they portray her involvement. By all accounts, very benevolent and much loved presence around the studio, but certainly not at all involved in the day-to-day business of Star Trek or any of the series being produced there. Uh, and really left that to her lawyer 
and her manager and the other people that were on the board. But I wouldn't put it past Gene Roddenberry to have made a pass at Lucille Ball, whether she was or wasn't married to Desi at the time, because that certainly seems to be part <laughs> of his, his nature and character. And we can get into that as we get into how many of his current or ex-girlfriends were in the series and at what expense to the quality of the series that came. But certainly Gene Roddenberry is a kind of lightning rod figure, I would say, as you read about the history of Star Trek. He's a canonical figure, of course. It's it's obvious and fair to say he created Star Trek. Yes. I read a great quote in one of the books where somebody said, you know, it's pretty common sometimes you have these people that have an idea. And the idea is so brazen and so original that it finds purchase somewhere at a studio or a television network. And then the business of actually turning that idea into a weekly returning, highly functioning series inevitably has to fall to other people because the person with the idea often doesn't have the skills and the wherewithal to muster the resources to put that on the screen every week. Yeah, I was surprised. I was surprised in poking around a little bit on this to find out that Roddenberry was was in the middle of producing other pilots at the same time that he was trying to get Star Trek on the air Mm -hmm. and that he essentially left the show, I think, after the you know, after after he had sort of turned it over to the the circle of line producers um, Mm -hmm. by the by the time the. The, the third season came around. He was just so convinced that the show was uh, was going to be canceled that he kind of um, abandoned it personally. Yeah, I mean, so Star Trek was never a success on television. Uh, I think anecdotally, it always appealed to exactly the people it appealed to while it was while it was a series on the air, which only lasted for three seasons. Uh, and, and really, by normal network math, would have been canceled after the first season because it wasn't performing that well. Roddenberry famously mustered the support of a who's who of science, science fiction writers at the time, people like Harlan Ellison, uh, who would go on to have a more complicated relationship with Roddenberry and the series. But he marshaled them to write letters to the network. And this was a time when I guess networks were a little bit more susceptible to campaigns of that sort, although this kind of thing exists to this day. But basically this kind of who's who literati uh, Glamour Squad, you know, writing letters to NBC, uh, per- persuaded them to keep the show on the air for season two. And then it was lucky for Roddenberry at all that that person, like you mentioned, a man by the name of Gene L. Kuhn came in and provided this much needed, very steadying presence. And he was he was a great producer, but he was also an, a fantastic and very efficient and quick writer. And that was really what the series needed. What's funny is, I'm reading the sequel to the 50-year mission book, which covers the Next Generation series creation. And all the exact same problems that existed in Star Trek from 1965, 66, 67, all the exact same problems existed at the birth of the Next Generation series, you know, 20, 25 years later, right? And I think that's the presence of Roddenberry looming over everything. He needed to be involved. He had to be involved. He wanted to be involved. Uh, But he wasn't capable of running a functioning writer's room or production entity. And his presence was both extremely necessary and also very disruptive because you couldn't ever get the rhythm of scripting and producing and filming 
uh, into a rhythm. And, and so that's a kind of interesting thing too, that Star Trek seems to have always been a troubled production, almost on every iteration of it. Certainly the movies uh, and the two main series, which I would say are the original series and Next Generation. But let's talk about what Roddenberry got right in the creation of Star Trek, because another thing, I posted this on Instagram the other day, when you watch the first pilot, which doesn't have William Shatner as Captain Kirk, right? It has um, Jeffrey Hunter. It has Jeffrey Hunter as, as Captain Pike in a, in a very different take on the captain's role. What did you think of uh, Jeffrey Hunter's take on the captain's role in the first, uh, the first pilot? I think that his acting was terrific. And I think that he had a great look about him. You know, I don't think that necessarily the kind of the philosophy of the show was laid down Mm -hmm. at the time of the first pilot. They were, there was so much work being done with the, uh, with the art direction and kind of creating, creating the, uh, the world of Star Trek without necessarily mm, the thinking about the kind of the, you know, the, the prime directive or, you know, mm-hmm. more about what the mission actually became. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, as a leading man, as it were, that uh, Jeffrey Hunter was terrific. I like that episode a lot. It was allegedly the negative, the negatives were that it was considered too cerebral. <laughs> right. But honestly, b- by the time we get to the second pilot, this where no man has gone before. Yeah. There's a big, you know, fight, you know, fight fight scene at the end and, and lots of action. But mm-hmm. there's also a lot of time with people standing around in sickbay talking about Spinoza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Jeffrey Hunter thing, I actually, this kind of goes back to what I was saying. You know, Star Trek is just this thing that in my life and in your life has always been around. And to the extent that it's always been around, I always tended to think of it as kind of fully formed. And when you get into watching certainly season one, you realize... I would say it took, really took at least 10 episodes for things to settle down, for Spock to become the Spock we know, for DeForest Kelly to even be cast as the ship's doctor, and to certainly find that triumvirate rhythm. One of the first things that struck me when I started watching the first season again, uh, and they're available on Amazon in a remastered uh, format, which I highly recommend people check out. You know, it's not really until you get that DeForest Kelly, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy triumvirate at the top and the three different slices of a personality that each represents kind of sparking off of each other that the series really starts to take shape. Everything really in those 10 episodes before that, to me, is them figuring it out on the fly, which, of course, they had to do. And Jeffrey Hunter gave kind of a moody, introspective, almost jaded performance in the first pilot, which is kind of a movie performance, and he was a movie star at the time. I thought it was a really interesting take on the captain figure. I thought it would have been really interesting to see where he would have gone, but it gave me a newfound appreciation for someone who kind of too often is the punchline of Star Trek in Shatner, you know, his the imitation of him, the hamminess and the overacting that he gets accused of. But at the same time, I also have a new appreciation for what he did bring to that role and the essentialness of him and, and the necessary kind of aspect of that personality that really did elevate things once he kind of got in. Now it's famously interesting that they signed Jeffrey Hunter to a typical contract 
which says you're going to appear in this pilot. And in order to protect Desilu and the production company, those contracts typically state you're going to appear in the pilot. And if the pilot goes to series, you're under contract to appear in the series for whatever it was, three seasons, five seasons, six seasons. And through a bizarre series of events, you know, the network rejects the pilot because, it, as you said, it was too cerebral. And Desilu realized that they didn't have Jeffrey Hunter under any kind of contract to force him or induce him to appear in a second pilot. So they had to basically get his services again. Now, of course, at that point, you would say the actor kind of has the production company over the barrel because they really need him. And the studio liked Jeffrey Hunter. He wasn't one of the things they had an issue with uh, in the pilot. So there's an anecdote in one of the books that Jeffrey Hunter, who at the time, you remember, this is still an era where the biggest and best thing for you to be as an actor would be to be a movie star. To do television or be in a television series was not considered the done thing. So rumor had it Jeffrey Hunter didn't even show up at the screening of the pilot that Desilu held in order to say, hey, look, here's what we did. We want to go over, you know, what the studio did and didn't like. And then we want to, we have a contract for a new pilot. We'd like you to be in the new pilot. Jeffrey Hunter reportedly didn't even go to that screening, but he sent his wife, who's also an actor. And she said, this is not the sort of thing Jeffrey would like to be involved with. He's a movie star. And he didn't sign on for the second pilot. So they had to cast Shatner, who had a little impressive career going for himself there as well. So the things that Roddenberry got right, even in that first part of the series where you can feel them figuring out things, because there's so much <laughs> for a series that we're familiar with today, right? There's so much coming and going of, wait, what happened to Majel Barrett as number one, you know, the, the second in command of the captain? All of a sudden, she's gone. Although she's not gone, she's just playing another role. Uh, and then, you know, we have someone else stepping in into the number one role, which is Leonard Nimoy as Spock. You have a different doctor. It's so striking to me how off the chemistry is with the original cast doctor, who I don't think was even called wasn't called McCoy, right? I think it was called something else. I don't remember what his name was. Well, we have three doctors. We've oh, got we have three. Uh, Jeez. Yeah. So there's uh there's Piper and Boyce. Oh, I right. forget <laughs> I forget which one is which, but the cage uh is uh actor, veteran actor John Hoyt. And then I guess Boyce in Where No Man Has Gone Before, and I don't remember that actor's name. Yeah. I, I think you know, Roddenberry's original pitch for Star Trek was famously Wagon Train to the Stars. And Wagon Train was a series that featured a wagon train making its way across the United States, right? East to West in that kind of great Western pilgrimage vibe and having various things befall them en route. And Roddenberry's pitch was Wagon Train to the Stars, which in itself, I think, was a very timely because... What's season, what's season one? 65, right? So we have the space race kind of going on. We have, you know, man starting to look up at the stars and wonder if that's something that we can explore. So I think that kind of idea was very forward-looking and timely. And there hadn't really been a series like that on television before outside of things like maybe The Outer Limits or The Twilight Zone, perhaps tackling thematic episodes uh, having to do with space exploration. So I, I think that was a very novel concept for the time. 
Yeah, and just to um, uh, stop the uh, the letter writing that you're going to get, uh, Paul Fix was Dr. Piper in Where No Man Has Gone Before, and John Hoyt was Dr. Boyce in The Cage. Okay, oh, thank and you. The, and the first season of the series is 66. Oh, 66, okay. Uh, yeah, so 66, 67, 68, I guess maybe to 69 when season three had concluded, like, you know, Man Walks on the Moon in 1969. So he certainly was looking forward in the right direction. Now, Gene Roddenberry himself is, of course, a colorful and interesting character who was originally, let's see, he was in the Air Force or the Army, I believe, in maybe World War II. Uh, And he then, bizarrely, worked for Chief Parker of the Los Angeles Police Department. Now, Roddenberry was kind of a bohemian, very liberal, left-leaning character by all accounts. certainly a Sybarite and a guy who lived his life without real respect for any conventions. And Parker was one of the most conservative and notorious figures in Los Angeles police lore and looms large in the noir novels of James Elroy and other crime fiction that's set in and around the time. So somehow he parlayed this kind of military experience into this role writing speeches for Parker at the LAPD and then fell into kind of this nascent television business, which was emerging at the time, which in its newness, I think represented something that, you know, kind of anybody could find their way into. One of the things that I think he also got really right that I just took for granted until I started reading about it is the naval underpinnings of Star Trek. And it didn't really occur to me until it was pointed out in one of the books, how much that both grounds the show in something that's sort of familiar to everyone, even if we don't really fully understand naval terminology. So the sense that, you know, it's Mr. Spock, Mr. Sulu, that Shatner is the captain, that we have decks on the Enterprise. We don't have floors, right? We're always talking about port and starboard. It's a vessel. This kind of removed a lot of the sort of sci-fi in air quotes, right? Stuff that I think a lot of other shows and a lot of other sci-fi content of its time probably had to engage in because everybody's trying to reinvent everything and the names for things. But the naval underpinning of Star Trek is, I think, one of the great secrets of its success. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah. um, And I thought about it, how I think, I guess more even gets carried over into the next generation series in my mind when you know, it's not just a hotel in space. Uh, by the time we get to the the movies and the and the series in the '80s, that all the rules of military conduct are very much researched and in place. Uh, but obviously, it's you know, it starts with the with the grounding of the series, as you say, uh, in military life, mm-hmm. naval life specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the uniforms, <laughs> which which do have mm-hmm. sort of a, a a naval flair, albeit probably from a different century, with the flared trousers and uh, that sort of stuff. And I think another key thing that was got right by Roddenberry, and this was a point of contention, really all through the writing of all the series, and certainly the Next Generation, where Roddenberry was alive for, I believe at least the first two seasons of The Next Generation. He may have died somewhere in the third season or shortly thereafter. But yeah, all, something, that's about right. All through the creation and, and the Sturm und Drang of all, the, all these series, 
one of the things that Roddenberry insisted on was that, and this didn't occur to me until I kind of was presented with it, that the conflict is never between each other, except in episodes where you have evil Spock or evil Kirk, right? Or somebody has, you know, there's an alternate reality going on, but it's not as if, you know, Spock is plotting against Kirk, right? Unless we have an episode where that's the thing that's going on. So a lot of times when people would submit scripts, you know, they would naturally, you're looking, you're writing a drama, right? So, well, here are these established characters. What kind of drama can I come up with to put these characters into? And people would frequently suggest or write scripts that had intrapersonal drama with the cat, the core cast. And Ronberry was always like, no, 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 that never happens here. That's not where the conflict lies, which I think is such an interesting and weirdly prescient choice, right? Like no other series that I can think of kind of works that way. Yeah. I mean, the one exception to what you're talking about would go back to what you were, what you mentioned a few minutes ago, which was that there were, there were philosophical problems amongst Mm -hmm. the, Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, two thirds of the trichotomy of characters. Right. And but that was all about problem solving. That was not about ego. Correct. Which is so funny because <laughs> so much of what leaked out and continues to leak out is the issues of ego between and amongst the cast members. <laughs> I mean, I just texted you the other day that, like, even with something as you would think, my God, William Shatner is 90 years old. Like, are the bygones bygones? No. He goes to space for crying out loud, right? And George Takai is just carping and bitching and saying something like, you know, uh, we should be focusing on other things. And he's clearly still bitter at Shatner, which a lot of these guys were, you know, fairly or unfairly. Funny enough, you know, a lot of the carping does come from the... Chekhov Sulu contingent and not quite as much from the Nimoy McCoy contingent, but really Chekhov and Sulu are the two main kind of fonts of discontent. And I think you can understand why, because on the one hand, once they're established and they're there, were they beloved characters? You know, certainly they did not have number one, the, the billing of the top three characters. I was also kind of surprised and I was like, Oh, that's so weird. You know, I pay attention to things like how the actors are credited on a show. And I'd forgotten that in the Star Trek credits, you have starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly. Those are the three build stars. And then you have, you know, also starring Walter Koenig, George Takai, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, Nichelle uh, playing Uhura. So less so on the Uhura side, who didn't really have a lot of sour grapes. Koenig and Takai, I would say, did not and do not comport themselves in these books with a tremendous amount of kind of, I don't know what you'd call it. It's not discretion. It's just they're bitter. And I'm not sure why, because I'm not sure that the career's outside of Star Trek really mandate that their importance should be anything other than kind of understood by them, that this is where they fit into this thing that has become a massive multi-billion dollar business. And they're always going to be a part of it. James Doohan too. He, he sort of 
seemed to have a more adult understanding of his role in the Echoverse and kind of made it work for himself. But I was kind of surprised to hear sort of some of the sour grapes continuing, even to this day, for crying out loud. I mean, these guys should be in the swan song phase of make, let's make nice and understand. But I guess the wounds run deep. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that the that the fault lines between the actors was something that developed on the original show. And <laughs> yes. you go back and you listen to <laughs> if you listen to interviews with uh, Walter Koenig or George Takai, they were they were the lower tier of actors in the mm-hmm. show, presumably less famous and mm-hmm. under and less paid. Correct. And and the division seems to uh, to ironically fall right between the senior officers and the junior <laughs> officers of, yes. star, of, uh, of Starfleet. Much like on a real naval vessel, I imagine. I would imagine so too, but yeah, no, these, these, um, these, I don't want to call them lesser actors. They, uh, the junior actors mm-hmm. felt that there was a, a kind of a cast system and that, uh, Shatner, you know, was, was best friends with Nimoy and D Kelly mm-hmm. and Nimoy didn't pay much attention to the, to the, um, to the younger actors and divorce Kelly was a little bit of a bridge, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, a social bridge between the senior guys and the junior guys, but that high school mm-hmm. um, system, you know, per- pervaded the set of the original show. And, you know, according to the way these guys talk and write about it, it continues to this day. As you said, <laughs> It's pretty funny. I mean, you know, I think Nimoy handled this really, really well. I, I you know, Leonard Nimoy is such a fascinating and when I say weird, I mean weird in a good way. You know, another point I wanted to make about Star Trek is Star Trek is weird in that good way. You know, that Hunter S. Thompson use of the term weird. Like, you know, I like things that are kind of offbeat counterculture. You know, are they messy? Are they a little bit confused at times? Yes, but they're way more interesting than most of the other things, you know, were fed at the time. And I was just looking at um, <laughs> what the what the top shows were you know, at the time that Star Trek aired, it's, it's so kind of fascinating because the number one show in, I guess, 1965 was Bonanza. The second, right. most, the second most popular show was Gomer Pyle, USMC. The third most popular show was the Lucy show, which most people would agree is a far subpar iteration of, you know, the classic Lucy ball show. And then the red skeleton hour was number four. So it, it's all comedies. Uh, well, I guess, except for Bonanza, I guess that's a drama, but these are so far away from what the hell Gene Roddenberry at all are trying to do, you know, in Star Trek, that that's just such a weird thing for it to, to have gotten on the air. And, and, you know, back to the cast part, you know, it's funny when you're reading these guys, you know, Koenig, particularly George Takai as well, kind of having what I think any dispassionate observer would say is sort of an overinflated sense of the importance of their characters in, in terms of kind of, you know, wondering where are the episodes that are all about my character, you know, when the universe is pretty clearly about the triumvirate, right? It's about Shatner, Spock, and D. Kelly. Now, interestingly, and I think tough for Shatner was pretty quickly in season one, it was Spock who was the breakout star. 
because he was so different and so weird. Like there was nothing like that performance on television. And Leonard Nimoy is one of those perfect marriages of actor and role. And I was, you know, running through a few of the things I thought Roddenberry got right. And I think casting Nimoy, which he always had in mind right away because Nimoy had appeared in a series that Roddenberry uh, worked on called The Lieutenant. And so one of the things that he had in mind very, very early was like, Leonard Nimoy is going to have a part in this. But imagine being Shatner. <laughs> and Roddenberry was always super protective of the fact that everything had to come from the captain. There's a famous adage in the writer's room that said, the captain has to come up with everything. And if he didn't come up with it, he, it has to be plausibly presented as if he did. <laughs> so in other words, like, Spock could suggest the rational course of action and Kirk could then accept that and decide to do it. But there had to be a moment where he decided to do it, even though the idea was given to him by another character. And this was very important to Shatner. And this was very important to Roddenberry. Now, when Nimoy becomes and, and Spock becomes this phenomena and there are, you know, cheap Spock ears and other kinds of merchandise that's happening. One of the executives said, look, you know, for all of Shatner's, you know, kind of centrality to the series, let me ask you a question. You know, if we had to replace Captain Kirk, how many guys could fill that role? You, know, you might say, you know, some to many. Uh, if you had to replace Spock, I I'm not sure you could do it. And he said, so who's the star of the show? And I think that was kind of an attitude that hung over Shatner and Nimoy's relationship for quite a while. I think Shatner, to his credit, did eventually evolve into an acceptance of that. But there are plenty of examples throughout the history of Star Trek of Shatner sort of saying, well, now he did that. So I want to do that pretty famously with him taking a stab at directing one of the films in Star Trek V, which many people feel is one of the weaker efforts in the film canon. But of course, Nimoy had directed, I think, two of the films prior to that. Those two had their own kind of dance with that stuff. But as you said, I think he and DeForest Kelly and Nimoy always made that kind of work collectively for them, even though there was this very clear hierarchy, uh, probably promoted by Roddenberry, intentionally or not, of the upper deck and below deck thing. So I was a little disappointed in, in uh, George Takai, who I think otherwise has a really important and interesting role to still play in popular culture. You know, he's still eminently tweetable and quotable and is funny. Um, and I think everyone generally feels warmly towards him, but I thought it was a little beneath him to take those shots at Shatner who going into space at 90 was just kind of a cool moment. Yeah. You know, and going back to um, the point that you made about things that Roddenberry got right from the get go. Um, in relation to the both the Spock character and the actor who portrayed him so well was that when the network was reviewing these pilot episodes and basically giving their notes on the things that needed to be cut from the show, mm -hmm. they didn't want that alien character. And it was Roddenberry who uh, mm -hmm. kept insisting that um, that they that they needed that they needed an alien in the cast and they needed. Uh, they needed that particular actor um, and he was willing to compromise on a lot of other things, but he was never compromising on, on keeping Spock as part of that universe. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think, and look how it turned out, like you said. Yeah. Now 
I do want to defend Nimoy a little bit because he he did go to bat for uh, some of the supporting characters when the animated series uh, went on the air, I think in 74, because famously uh, there was, there were really, you know, intense cost concerns to try and figure out how to produce an animated version of Star Trek for a half hour for a Saturday morning cartoon audience. And Roddenberry in the studio, I think understandably said, look, we've, we've got to have these three guys. We have to have DeForest Kelly, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. And James Doohan had, had done a lot of animation voices and was extremely versatile in that and could do a number of accents. I sort of posted a thing on Instagram making fun of myself because I literally was today years old when I learned he didn't speak in a Scottish accent. He was Canadian. (laughs) I had no idea. I just assumed James Doohan was a complete card carrying kilt wearing Scotsman. Uh, These 60 years, I've just had that assumption. But in fact, he could do a number of accents. And that's why he did, I think, maybe 10 different voices on the animated series. But originally, they weren't going to hire George Takai, Nichelle Nichols, and Walter Koenig. And it was Nimoy who got wind of that and said, hey, wait a minute. The whole central ethos of Star Trek is inclusion and diversity. So you're telling me you're not going to hire two minority cast members in a show about that? That's not going to work. And you're not going to have my services if that's what you do. So they went back and they relented and they did end up hiring uh, the three of them to do to do the voices of their own characters. So Nimoy now, do you did know... Oh, I just wondered if when you were looking in, into the animated series, because it only lasted for one season, mm-hmm. was the issue with it, was it ratings or that it was too expensive <laughs> to make? Well, the issue is that, that it was just so, it was, it was actual Star Trek minus Kirk's romantic pursuits. So if you cut out Kirk's romantic entanglements of any given hour long episode of Star Trek, you're probably left with about 30 minutes of actual Star Trek plot. And essentially, same writers, uh, DC Fontana, Dorothy Fontana, you know, many of the uh, uh, Samuel Peoples, many of the people that had written some of the most famous episodes of Star Trek of them all in the original series were on board for the animated series. And so when you watch these episodes, they really hold up. And in fact, I think cutting out the kind of dated, you know, swashbuckling Coxman angle of Captain Kirk is a benefit of those animated episodes, but they didn't work because they were not geared towards kids. There's the same philosophical kind of underpinning going on in the thematic stuff of this ostensibly Saturday morning, you know, bubblegum cartoon. But the stuff that they're doing is exactly the stuff that they would have been doing in the actual series. So I don't think unless you were stoned out of your mind as a teenager and kind of stumbled across it, that it would have done well. I think in retrospect, had they put it on in prime time, it probably would have done better because in a lot of ways, freed from the production constraints, you know, the cheesiness of the sets and the, the fake styrofoam rocks and the rubbery alien costumes, you know, when you put that into this 2D animation that still has a very effective kind of vibe today, uh, it really works. You know, they can, they can, take the cast places and do things and create worlds that are really pretty impressive, you know, and in a lot of ways more impressive than what they were able to do with real sets and with real actors under makeup. So it didn't work, but it's, as I, as I told you, I, I was really surprised to watch, you know, four or five episodes of that and just 
how good they really are. And I know that DC Fontana herself says, you know, this is the fourth season of Star Trek. That's how people should consider it. You've watched the original seasons many, many times, and you've never explored the animated series. Check it out because I think you'll find it is a fourth season of something you really like, and it has all the original voices and the performances are quite well done. Yeah. And I think you've got a hot take there, Jason, that, um, you know, the original series was good, but the animated series is this is the same thing without reality. Yeah. And it's it, it frees the, the trappings show. of yeah. <laughs> the trappings of uh, of sets and costumes. I mean, you know, it's amazing what they were able to do, given the tight turnaround that they had at Desilu in terms of the sets that were required. Uh, and, you know, the people in the production management department and the construction departments and you know, and whatnot are really the heroes of the first three seasons because what they were able to do uh, in terms of using the sets that were available to them. There's a guy named Matt Jeffries. He's one of the unsung absolute heroes of the first three seasons of Star Trek because he's the guy who could build any set and he could make the most out of the limited opportunity that they had to create different environments and reuse things. And he, he could come up with things like phasers and Klingon battle cruisers, like he could just mock this stuff up. And he was also just, by all accounts, a very decent, kind person who was never flapped and, you know, could could come up with a lot of creative and inventive solutions to to address some of the issues that they had, you know, shooting in these old studios without the ability to really have a production value uh, that they required. Let's talk about a couple of things Roddenberry got wrong uh, in the original series. Uh, I had first on my list, I was going to say Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Pike. I wouldn't say that he got that wrong per se, but I guess only in the sense that I'm not sure that would have been an ongoing concern. You know, like uh, when I say ongoing concern, I just mean, would that have worked over the course of three seasons to have that sort of a performance at the center? I think Star Trek really needed Shatner at the center. You know, it just works. I mean, (laughs) You know, they say, you know, you could replace the captain if you had to. But I mean, even when it comes to the new movies, Chris Pine just really looks like a young William Shatner and has that bravado and that bombast. And I don't think you can get away from that at this point. Yeah. And not only that, but I think Chris Pine, when you watch these movies, he's doing a mimicry, (laughs) not in the not in the, you know, the the. He's not doing an impression. Stand-up comedian sense, yeah. but he's he is literally trying to um, <laughs> embody Bill Shatner's particular performance of that particular character. Right. So I think you know casting Jeffrey Hunter. I think made sense in 1965 uh, because you have a big movie star at the time. You know Jeffrey Hunter's relationship with Star Trek in his career really reminded me a lot of the Rick Dalton character in Tarantino's once upon a time in Hollywood, because he's really essentially living out in, in real time in his career, the crisis that Rick Dalton found himself in because Jeffrey Hunter was very much a star of that Western area of Hollywood, you know, in the forties and fifties. And Mm -hmm. here comes television, here comes color television. It's this new thing that people didn't really understand. And certainly to be an actor, was, you know, you didn't just go do television. 
that's exactly the, the dilemma presented to the Leonardo DiCaprio character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Who is a former Western star who's trying to navigate the dawn of new Hollywood. And that's another thing that's impressive about Star Trek is even though you do have the dawn of new Hollywood right at this time, Star Trek both is and isn't of that. You know, it is impressively its own weird thing. It, it is countercultural, but it also has these establishment naval underpinnings. It is kind of forward looking and, you know, racially diverse. And it speaks to Roddenberry's kind of view of a time in the future when humans will have overcome these sort of petty divisions amongst ourselves. Yet it's also completely rooted in Roddenberry's own misogyny and sexism and its portrayal of women, you know? So for every kind of two steps it takes forward, it also kind of takes a step back, which I think is kind of interesting. I really like your observation about, about the Rick Dalton, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio um, similarity in, in, as reflected in Jeffrey Hunter's real life, which is that after he and his wife pass on doing this series, mm. it's not like his uh, movie career takes off. Correct. Um, he ends up actually going to do other pilots for TV um, and ends up kind of in that mm-hmm. that that weird film world that was going on with American actors going over to Italy and Spain and right. doing productions of American genre films mm-hmm. uh, in Europe. The last movie that he made, I don't know if you got into this because Jeffrey Hunter died pretty young and. It, what may have contributed to his death was an accident that happened on a set of a Chicago mafia movie that was being filmed <laughs> in Spain right. uh, when a, a, a window blew up and gave him a concussion. Yeah, that's very much. Um, yeah, but it's the, he, the, he, he uh, died in 69, uh, I think, too. Right. Yes. Yeah, so about that time. I think he was 44 years old. Yeah. But the the career path that he went through and then to compare that to what happens with of what happened with the character, the Rick Dalton character and the alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost looks like it, like maybe Tarantino could have been inspired by Jeffrey Hunter's career to a certain extent. Although I know that guess that Rick Dalton character was actually based on somebody else, but the similarities are interesting. Well, I think there um, is, there's enough also to, you know, Tarantino was supposed to write and direct a Star Trek movie. Oh, okay. um, so he, he certainly is invested in that. And also I didn't know this until kind of reading the books, but the stunt double for, I believe it's either Jeffrey Hunter or it may be the character in Where No Man Has Gone Before was Hal Needham, who is whose relationship with Burt Reynolds yeah. was one of the inspirations for Tarantino with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So there are some interesting cross-pollinations there between Tarantino and Star Trek. And certainly that kind of, that actor like Jeffrey Hunter is such a screen presence yeah, that's uh, fascinating. I have it right here that Hal Needham was the stunt double for Gary Lockwood. In, that's right. For uh, Gary Lockwood. Where no yes. man has gone before. That's right. Anyway, I, did, I hate to enter. I wanted to hear more about your list of things that didn't work. Oh, okay. So number two, uh, Majel Barrett as both number one and then being kind of continued on the series um, as Nurse Chapel. Now, Majel Barrett, I think this is widely understood if you read anything about star trek if you google her or or look at her wikipedia page i'm i'm pretty sure that one of the first things that will be mentioned is that she went on to marry gene roddenberry who began an affair with her while he was still married to his first wife and gene roddenberry also had affairs with nichelle nichols and many other 
bit players who entered the Star Trek orbit and throughout his life. So I think it's pretty clear that there was a certain amount of nepotistic casting going on in putting Majel Barrett in this role. As you said, originally, she was supposed to be kind of the Spock-like uh, right-hand figure to the captain character. And it was she who's referred to in that first pilot as cold and unfeeling in sort of a misogynistic way by one of the characters who's kind of hitting on her in a otherwise professional setting <laughs> of their, of their work on the bridge. But, you know, she's just not up to it. I'm sorry, as an actor. And so her continued presence in the Star Trek universe to me just sort of stands out as kind of an affront to this idea that we should get the best possible actor for every role. And that, that wasn't really what was done in the Star Trek universe. So. I don't know if you want to offer a spirited defense of Major Barrett in the Star Trek. Um, I'm not. I'm not really. I'm going to be an agnostic on um, on Major Barrett. I, mm-hmm. I think that the the Nurse Chapel character plays a role in the show, mm-hmm. um, just like any kind of secondary or tertiary character. And and I don't, I'm neither bothered by her acting mm-hmm. uh, nor by her presence on the show. I know by the time we get to uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, she plays another character. She plays, <laughs> right. I don't know if you recall, but she plays Diana, Deanna Troy's mother, mother yes. in that show and, and continues to come back as one of the most hauntingly awful, irritating characters in the history of the show. You know, what's funny is Gene Roddenberry himself during The Next Generation would go to his head writer and he would say, can you come up with something to bring Deanna Troy's mother back. You don't understand what I'm getting at home. You know, she was pressing him to, to get her back into the next generation more often than not. Gene Roddenberry and Majel Barrett, actually, once they were married, also during the original Star Trek had a kind of a merchandising company that was, I think, called Lincoln Productions or something. And literally, they would gather the discarded ends of the film, the actual you know, 16 millimeter film that the show was shot on, they would gather these from the edit rooms and they would cut them up into individual frames and they sold them to fans for a dollar a frame. And this is how they kind of supplemented their income. Yeah. I think some of the casting decisions, I don't know, to me, I I don't think that, that uh, Walter Koenig and, and George Takai are good actors by my definition of a good actor. I think that Shatner, Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly are very good. And DeForest Kelly particularly, you know, strikes me. And James Doohan, too. Nichelle Nichols is very good, although she's not given much to do. But really, Sulu and and Chekhov, to me, are very weak links and stand out as such. You know, we were kind of joking that Chekhov was brought aboard to try and... (laughs) Try and appeal to the TD Bopper audience because of Davy Jones and the monkeys. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> right. Is that really, was that going to save the show? I don't think so. <laughs> and the wigs are just horrible. I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they have him in a, in a woman's sort of short Bob wig that they've combed over in some attempt to appeal to kind of like a beetle cut. It just looks ridiculous. And the other thing I would say reading a lot, and I'm I'm comfortable saying this because I've read these two, you know, 500 page tomes about the making of Star Trek. And I think given the fact that there are so many different voices heard in these tomes, 
you know, it's fair to say that Gene Roddenberry, one of the things he got wrong was being a captain himself of this enterprise, which was Star Trek. He was not suited to that. He created a tremendous amount of disruption, upheaval, unpleasantness. He was not a he he was not a leader of men. He was vainglorious and threatened and needlessly hurt people who were only trying to help the series be better. And he was a pretty terrible steward of the franchise, which I think survived him. And yet he also was intrinsic to not only its creation, but continuing to keep it kind of going in the right direction. As I mentioned, when people and writers would try to write these scripts, some of which were considered to be very good, but did things that Gene would typically shoot down just by saying, that's not Star Trek. And of course, as a writer, you don't have any defense to that. Like the guy who created Star Trek is telling you that's not Star Trek. Like you, you don't even, what are you supposed to say? Right? Like Kirk wouldn't do that. Spock wouldn't do that. Uh, the ship wouldn't do that, you know, and he was right. I think in a lot of places he's right about that. But I think overall, as someone who could have had more self-awareness, I think might have carved out a better role for himself that was much less disruptive and really allowed the product to be better. Because really, a lot of what's bad about the original episodes, it can really directly be attributed to Gene's meddling in the writing. He wasn't a writer, but he always wished he was. And so he would rewrite people's scripts. He would take credit for things that weren't his idea. And he did a lot of things like that that left a lot of more sour grapes than like Takai and, you know, Caning have towards Shatner. Uh, you can find a litany of people, you know, famously in the next generation. I think they used to keep a list in the bathroom of writers who had been hired and fired. And it's just hundreds and hundreds of people who kind of came in and could never quite grasp how to do this. And admittedly, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do when you are, you're, you, you have to take off the table the possibility of internal conflict between the characters, other than, as you say, sort of philosophical or approach differences. Yeah. Um, so he's compelling. He's a very, he's, a, he's an intrinsic part of television history, but a very flawed and, and deeply kind of wounded person who never really figured out his own shit. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Let's talk a little bit about where no man went before, because as I mentioned to you, this was the episode that imprinted Star Trek on my, my young preteen brain for two reasons, the silver eyes and Sally Kellerman, which do you want to take first? Well, I'm going to go with the, the silver, the weird eyes, mm -hmm. because again, 
you know, what's fun about revisiting these episodes uh, and going to look on blog posts and histories and stuff is you can always pick up something that you didn't know before. Yeah. One of the things that I picked up in uh, getting ready to, to record this podcast was that the the eyes were silver contact lenses in which the <laughs> the the guy who designed them had put tinfoil um, <laughs> inside of several. Somehow he was able to take a couple of contact lenses, put tinfoil on the inside and then and then seal it up. Um right. So part of what you're seeing in this show here is effects, uh, and part of it is is actually some a weird thing being reflected out of their actual eyes. I was also really fascinated to learn that these things were so uncomfortable for the actors, and Gary Lockwood couldn't really see. And so Gary Lockwood, in the role there of Gary Mitchell, he is doing this very theatrical thing where when, when they shoot him, he keeps he's he's keeps sort of looking up into the uh, up into the frame and his chin is kind of sticking out all the time. And I was really fascinated to find out that a lot of what he's doing is trying to see the other actors because he can't he can't see anything through the contact lenses, these giant contact lenses they stuffed in his eyes. Yeah, it's brilliant. It gives him this imperious godlike quality because he actually has to hold his head and really literally look down his nose at everyone else on the cast. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, a, such a great um, circumstance of just acting and also just, you know, adjusting to the physical reality of what you're being uh, expected to do as a serious actor <laughs> with these goddamn contacts in your eyes. The other thing I noticed when watching it, I, I had never seen this before. There's a scene um, right after, where is it? It's somewhere where the the scene goes to black to a commercial break, mm-hmm. and Gary's eyes linger in the black Ooh, in the frame. Yes. Have you ever yeah. seen that before? No, you know I've not. No, I've not seen that. But that sounds extremely disturbing, like something that I would have imprinted on my brain. And Gary Lockwood's kind of a shoot from the hip, funny uh, presence in these books. These making of histories too. He's he sort of just sounds kind of bizarre and strange, almost in the way that like astronauts sound when they come back from space, you know, he's kind, yeah. of, ch- he's kind of changed. I'm not sure if it was his experience on 2001 or we're doing this, but yeah, the contact lens guy is a funny story in the, uh, in the solo John Roberts book because they, sorry, in the Bob Justman book, because he, they had, they had to go find someone to make these, these, these lenses. They had no idea how are we going to do this effect and I guess they were called scleral lenses, which, which, unlike today's contact lenses, cover the entire portion of the eye. And as such, they could have a layer where they, he literally put tinfoil in there. And apparently Sally Kellerman had no problem wearing these. They would take them out in between takes because you couldn't really wear them for too long. But he had a big problem. Gary Lockwood had a big problem wearing them. But it actually ended up kind of working. So... I think as a kid, I don't know why those eyes were so haunting. When I think of this show, that's the first thing I remember. Because I think it looks so weird to my probable, I don't know, 1974, 1975, 1976 brain. Because that's probably when this was coming out, you know, so I wasn't yet 10 years old. And I think that the haunting nature and the power also kind of scared me. You know, that was sort of something I found off-putting and scary. Uh, Levin, again, 
not yet being 10 years old, with this kind of dawning awareness of something that Sally Kellerman woke up in my young self because her performance is pretty erotic for its time, I would say, even though nothing really happens. But her characterization of the Elizabeth Daner role and her embodiment of it at the time, it's just kind of sexy, you know? And it's it, that too imprints on the young mind watching an early Star Trek. I think she delivers it a great performance. I don't mean to say that her physical qualities are the the only thing that I took away. At the time, they probably were. But when I re-kind of watch the show now, uh, you know, she's a very skilled and gifted actor on that set. And she's actually kind of a little more compelling a presence than even Gary Lockwood, the ostensible kind of guest star, I would say. He's got the showiest part, right? He gets to be a godlike figure and hurl Kirk around and throw thunderbolts out of his fingers and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. But she's a great actor. And so I think that shows in that, that characterization. So I think that, that kind of depiction of this couple and the powers that they were developing and sharing and sort of the strangeness of it as an episode, it's deeply weird. And I think a much more compelling and successful pilot, obviously, because that's the one that led to the rest of the series getting ordered. Throughout the series, I mean, you can go back and look at the guest stars on the show and there are some really fine actors and some really not so fine actors and a lot of mediocre actors, but that the presence of those two guest stars and what they pull off in, you know, in a 50 minute episode Mm -hmm. or whatever brings a lot of movie theatricality to, to a TV show. And what's funny is when I think about that episode and you think about that episode leading to the ordering of the series and all that came since, right? Like literally everything that we know of in the Star Trek universe, all the series, you know, I don't know how many series there are, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 different iterations, animated series, books, movies, all of that comes from this pilot being successful, this second pilot being successful. But when I think of this pilot, I can't think of a memorable thing that Kirk, Spock, or anyone else does. I think only of Gary Lockwood and Sally Kellerman's characters. So in a funny way, the episode that begat everything else, it kind of features these two really magnetic performances from these bona fide movie star people who are doing this television show, which I think is interesting too. You know, it's not as if it's a Kirk or a Spock action that I think sticks out to me. It's those two and kind of their, their silver eyes and their presence on screen is the thing that obviously sold the studio and then launched ever launched a million ships. You know, it's a really good point because there's a lot of the Kirk is there. Mm-hmm. But the Spock, as he's depicted, even as an emotionless <laughs> yes. alien, is he's a little shouty. Very mili- <laughs> he's, he's this militaristic guy who, you know, from the very beginning, he's the one that is convinced that they need to uh, murder <laughs> Gary Lockwood. Um, right. Not even strand no, him. They just, just kill they, him. He, Captain. He, <laughs> kill him while you can. It's not the Spock that um, that people became familiar with. No. And. As we mentioned before, McCoy isn't there at all. Right. So it's just so strange that that is the thing, you know, that launched. Now, I'm looking right now at my original, I think they came out in 1975, the Ballantine photo novel, which was a thing in the 70s where you would take episodes of shows. I don't know if they did this exclusively for Star Trek or if they did this for other things as well. There's probably like a Laverne and Shirley photo novel for all I know. But they essentially... Photo with an F? Yes, photo with an F. 
And the one I have is for where no man has gone before. And they essentially just take stills from the episode and provide caption and commentary so that it reads like sort of a comic book, but with photos, F-O-T-O. So, so one of the things that I enjoy going down this, (laughs) this rabbit hole as I've done for the past few weeks, I've kind of added to my, I'll say my office collection, because if I brought this stuff home, I think my wife would probably, you know, certainly look askance, but in my office, it's a safe place to keep childhood totemic memorabilia. And I've re- upped myself on some things that I remembered having as a kid. One is the photo novel of Where No Man Has Gone Before. The other is the uh, Starfleet Technical Manual, which is a book that goes into great detail about uniforms and pins and insignia and the layout of the Enterprise. And then also another Ballantine product from 75 are the blue, the collection of 12 blueprints of the enterprise, which are incredibly detailed and give you, uh, they're, they're actual real architectural renderings, uh, deck by deck and, you know, location by location of the enterprise. So I, I purchased some of those things on eBay as we were going through the prep for this, because I don't know, I just like to have that stuff that reminds me of television in the seventies. Kevin, this is Scott. Kevin, this is Scott. Can you hear me? Or now. The Star Trek communicators with push to talk button. Scott, this is Kevin. My bike is broken. Can you help me? Over. Yes, but send me a signal so I can find you. Star Trek communicators with a range of 1,300 feet. Push button. Twin warp sound. Uses one 9-volt battery. Not included. Star Trek communicators with belt hook, telescoping antenna, and twin warp sound. From Ego. It's important for people to remember, Star Trek was not a success any of the three years that it was on by any traditional measure. You know, it became a phenomena six or seven or eight years after it had ceased to air once it found success in syndication. And this was really an area where, uh, where Desilu and Paramount were far ahead of the curve. You know, no one had uh, had really thought that these series would have a life beyond their initial airings and premieres. And the concept that we all grew up with in the 70s, if you grew up in the 70s, of coming home from school and turning on the television, and at three or four or five or six or seven o'clock, there were these reruns on, uh, you know, that was entirely a business of the early 70s. And Star Trek was one of the shows, if not the show, that really started that. And those rights were, before then, really not worth anything to the studios or the networks, I should say, that were putting these shows on the air. Now, part of what happened kind of to Desi Liu and to Lucille Ball was there came a time when the studio was not a viable and ongoing concern because, again, Star Trek was not a hit during the years that it was made. In fact, they probably spent more money to make each episode than they were being paid by the network, which isn't uncommon, but you know, there at the time was no real recourse to recoup that money. And I think, unfortunately for Lucy and her heirs, uh, who, let's remember, would have owned Star Trek as a property, sold Desilu to Paramount, which was right next door. It was like literally across the street. Like their studio lots were adjacent to each other. And Paramount bought Desilu and all of its intellectual property. And so it's really Paramount 
that has benefited all these years from the intellectual property of Star Trek, which is just another funny kind of side note to the history of the property. So in the seventies, everything, you know, kind of becomes, it becomes a thing and really it's the launch of fan culture. I don't know if people are old enough listening to remember, but it used to be a thing that if you wanted to have a throwaway comedic line in a piece of filmed entertainment from the seventies or a sitcom, you didn't say like Comic-Con, you know, the throwaway line was a Star Trek convention, right? Those were really the first fan conventions, I think, that kind of came about in the 70s. Yeah. And this is because people loved something that they couldn't get. They, there was no there was no avenue to gather them. So they created their own avenue to gather. And a Star Trek convention was a, was a thing. Absolutely. And, you know, between the between the the second cancellation of the original TV show and the movie, Star Trek movie is 1980, 79, 80? The first one? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So what you've got is this uh, afterlife of a short live TV show on syndicated reruns, Trekkie conventions, the animated series, not to mention just all the merchandising. All <laughs> right. I mean, the stuff that you're talking about uh, that you're getting, that you're collecting, mm-hmm. you know, from eBay and other sources, a lot of it was made after the show was uh, was canceled. Yeah. By the time the late 70s roll around, there's enough of an interest and impetus and enough of a, of a fan base to do a remake of the show from the 60s. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Star Wars. <laughs> right. And, you know, the studio people take a look at what happened with the first two, uh, two Star Wars movies. And they're like, oh, <laughs> well, maybe what we've got here is a movie franchise right. and not another expensive TV show. Right. So, yeah, Star Wars is 77. Uh, right at the same time that this fan culture is emerging around Star Trek, Star Wars comes out in 77. And the first Star Trek motion picture is released December 7th, 1979. So absolutely hand in hand. Now, people laugh at me. I think you laughed at me. Of all the six original Star Trek films prior to the Next Generation films, the the one I sort of have to admit I have the closest connection to is the first one, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I think, is it safe to say it's the worst one by any? No, I don't think it's the worst one. Okay. I think a lot of people think it's pretty bad. But and it is pretty bad. But again, I think in 1979, I'm 10 years old. I'm watching this, and it just was something that had a really big imprinting effect on me. I don't think anyone had seen a bald woman on screen before in quite that way. I just have a soft spot for it, even though I think some of the other films are quote unquote better. Yeah, I like it. Um, I'm glad to hear. And uh, and I, and I'm not ashamed to admit it either. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I think a lot of people, you know, and my friend on the podcast and we did Wrath of Khan, 
And he's a huge, huge Wrath of Khan fan, Star Trek II. The second movie, which to me is just, I'm not really a Nicholas Meyer fan. He directed that one. He kind of inserts all of these really forced Shakespearean and philosophical references and things. And he's kind of a, I don't know, kind of a pompous ass in a way. I get Star Trek Wrath of Khan is a fun romp, but I actually like, I just watched all of these movies again. And I do like Search for Spock. (laughs) I do like The Voyage Home, which is the whale movie directed by Leonard Nimoy, right? And, you know, I even like Final Frontier, which is Shatner's one, except for the ending. It doesn't really hold together at the end, but... Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think where you need to get some psychology (laughs) is not in liking the first movie. It's in disliking Star Trek II and liking the final <laughs> frontier those are much bigger um problems I, I agree. that I, you need to have listen with. even i i can't even argue with that i totally get it you know um it's hard i guess what it was was in reading the books you know there's just pages upon pages upon pages of sort of what was going on leading to shatner directing the final frontier in 1989 and it Awful. and it's it's being written about in such a way that sort of when when i start watching it I'm kind of like, this isn't terrible. Like, this is actually a good premise for a Star Trek movie. In fact, one that we've seen before in the original series, like many of the movies. And it's not poorly handled by any stretch of the means. You know, I think it has some of Shatner's sense of humor, which I which I relish and enjoy. Famously, you know, after the first three movies, so motion picture, Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, you have the death of Spock, quote unquote. And all these movies are kind of heavy and a little darker. And then, you know, the voyage home kind of lightened things up with the whale. It was sort of the trouble with tribbles movie kind of version, you know, like a lot of, a lot of hardcore Star Trek fans kind of look down their noses at an episode, like, like muds women or trouble with tribbles. Cause they're just kind of too broadly comedic for them, I guess. But Nimoy lightened things up with The Voyage Home as much as you can lighten up a story about the extinction of whales, I suppose. But, you know, it's funny. It's silly. Putting them in contemporary San Francisco society just pays pays off. And I think Shatner kind of continued that a little bit in The Final Frontier, even though at the end it just doesn't have an end. And that's kind of what everybody writes about, that, you know, even he says... Look, I didn't marshal my resources correctly as a director. You know, I didn't save enough money to really have the end be as cosmically godlike as kind of the whole setup demanded to be. But it's actually got a really good villain. I think Lawrence Luckinbill is a really great Star Trek villain. Maybe I could even make an argument. He's one of the better, more interesting ones. Hi, Jason here with a quick break in. I should have mentioned when I was talking to Rick... Lawrence Luckinbill, who plays the villain Cybok in the film Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, actually brings things kind of full circle in the discussion because he's actually Lucille Ball's son-in-law. He's married to Lucy Arnaz, who is the daughter of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Another side note on Lawrence Luckinbill, he is the uncle of Lana and Lily Wachowski, the film directors of The Matrix series. So little Lawrence Luck and Bill trivia for you. Back to my conversation with Rick about Star Trek. I would put him and Christopher Lloyd as probably the two best villains of the movie series with Ricardo Montalban being, but I'd put him in third place after, after those two guys. 
Jason, I got to say, there's there's something for everyone and someone for everything. Well, well, you don't think Lawrence Luckinbill and Christopher Lloyd do a good job in the movies? Um, no, I like both of those actors in that movie. I just think that Ricardo Montalban is <laughs> is an astoundingly versatile, surprisingly good actor. No, he is. I mean, give me a break. He's Ricardo Montalban. He's in his own class. So, but yeah, I don't know. I have a soft. I mean, look, the movies by and large in this six film sequence, I, I wouldn't say any of them are great, right? Like we're judging them based on sort of being star trek product which has to include some things that we like and also has to make some allowances for things that we might roll our eyes at so i don't think any of them is a great quote-unquote motion picture on its own they all exist as part of this canon and in fact you know i think i missed pretty much all of the next generation films i probably saw them at the time but i have no memory really of them i'd have to i'd have to investigate and perhaps you can tell me if it's even worth revisiting those that sequence of four or five films, the next generation films. I think there's, I think there's three, not counting the, um, the one with the William Shatner. The generation is the first one of the next generation film. Yeah. Right. And, uh, I think that they have varying degrees of success, not unlike the original, mm -hmm. uh, like the original movies. First contact insurrection nemesis. Nemesis is the one that I like the most. And that was the one that was kind of, um, dislike mm. the most by okay others. so see you and i are not so different after all like star trek we've right i'm just saying i'm just saying you're gonna get left <laughs> and then the what they call i did not know this that the jb jj abrams reboots are called the kelvin timeline did you know that uh, I, <laughs> I never heard that i never heard that very much very much loved the first one 2009 i'm not sure the other two quite held up subsequent to that but I guess we'll see what I, I guess we'll see what comes. We'll we'll probably be getting more uh, as it comes along. And I was also interested to know. I remember you were a big you were a big Next Generation fan um, in college. Yeah, I think that was a appointment mm -hmm. viewing for you. Mm, that's true. Was that stemming from your Was that stemming from your childhood love of Star Trek? I suppose we should start with your uh, your notebook lined ratings system that you kept for original Star Trek episodes. Can you, can you tell me when you began doing that? Yeah, well, when we originally started talking about <laughs> doing an episode on Star Trek, I dug out this, this book that I have. Uh, it's the Star Trek Compendium mm -hmm. book. Uh, this is dated 1981. Okay. So this must have been published right after the first movie came, between the first and second movies. Uh, and then in the back, I was kind of surprised to find two sheets of three hole punched <laughs> Uh, notebook paper on which I had handwritten in pencil the title of every episode. And then, I mean, basically this is a, this is early, this is early Excel spreadsheet. Now this is your, this is your original, this is your copy of the Star Trek compendium, which you probably got in 1981. Yes. And somewhere I'm guessing around 1982 or 1983, which would have made me about 12 or 13 years old, I hand wrote my own spreadsheet in which I listed <laughs> the title mm -hmm. of each episode in production order, then also created a column for the aired order, <laughs> and then a rating system uh, between one and four, with, with four being 
the highest possible mm -hmm. score that an episode could get right. out of the original 79 episodes. And I'm looking right here. Number two, Where No Man Has Gone Before, Production Order 2, Air Order 3, Rating 4. Wow. Not only did you invent Excel. Yeah. But you had the presence of mind as, you know, a nine or 10 year old in 1981 to do production order versus air order, which makes you a genius in my book, Rick. I mean, who, what eight or nine or 10 year old would do that? That's, that's impressive. That is very impressive. Well, it was, you know, it was important to have a, have reference material when you're watching these episodes over and over again. Okay. Go, go through your, go through some of your other four rated episodes. Oh, let's see. Um, I had ranked uh, The Man Trap, mm -hmm. which is the first aired episode. Um, yep. The Enemy Within was a four. That was the first uh, um, Kirk Double episode. Yes. Balance of Terror. I think you watched that one with the... Uh, yeah, that's the, kind of the sub... That's the sort of submarine battle-esque one. Yeah, and the first appearance of the uh, Romulans. The Romulans. Uh, yeah. What are That's little four. girls made of? I know you watched that one. That's the one yeah. with the uh, with Lurch. Yes, <laughs> love that episode. Uh, Arena is the one with the Gorn. Yep, love that one. Did you watch uh, Alternative Factor? Alternative Factor. That's a really that one's a little bit off the map as far as it doesn't. I love the title. It doesn't feel exactly like a Star Trek episode, but it's the one where there's this. this is that season, that's strange, season one. It is season one, episode uh, 20. I'm sorry, aired number 27. Hmm, I don't think I've seen that. Well, I mean, I'm, pretty, I'm sure. Yeah, I would recommend that one. There's oh, this a, is, there's this is this. the one. That's the one where um, that's the one famously where John Barrymore didn't show up. Do you know that story? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so th that was just covered in this book I'm reading where, you know, they had cast, uh, I guess it doesn't involve some kind of like, it doesn't involve someone who like jumps through history or something, or it, it's got some kind of a, some kind of a reason to cast an actor of the stature of John Barrymore, who's like the patriarch of the Barrymore acting clan. Right. Uh, I don't know if he's Drew Barrymore's father or grandfather or something. Uh, he's jumping through dimensions, but it's a it's a very um, high concept episode. Not necessarily greatest script, but I like it a lot. Yeah, and so famously they cast John Drew Barrymore as this lead character, and you know this show could not afford even an hour delay in shooting. I mean, this is how just over budget and kind of overrun things were at Desilu at the time. So the day came to film this episode and he just didn't show up and they couldn't find him. They couldn't locate him. So they literally had to scramble and within an hour or two, find someone to recast in the role and adjust Barrymore's wardrobe to suit. And the producers, uh, two of whom, you know, were Herb Solo and, and Robert Justman were so angry at the lack of professionalism from John Barrymore that they actually uh, took him to court with the Screen Actors Guild and they won an injunction, which prevented Barrymore from acting for six months, <laughs> which I didn't even know you could do <laughs> as a producer. Wow. So they basically prevented him from working as an actor for six months for not showing up, which is pretty funny. But I, I want to watch that episode because I've, you know what, I, in this kind of rewatch that I jumped into, 
I kind of fell into just watching a few of the episodes from the beginning of season one, but then I really kind of fell into watching the Gene L. Kuhn produced episodes because a lot of what's written is about how essential Gene Kuhn was to kind of writing the ship, which is really the majority of season two, which I think everyone would agree probably has the best collection of the best episodes. Mm -hmm. And then things kind of start to go off the rails when he leaves, he just gets burned out and kind of, you know, a combination of burned out and pushed out by Gene Roddenberry, which is why season three sort of when everyone knows the writings on the wall and the budget is cut for a third time, by the way, not from NBC, but from Desi Liu. So they had less money to do what they had to do in season three than they did in season one. So yes, the, the much maligned seat, much maligned season three. And <laughs> there are some, there are some, uh, there are some gems in season three, but if, always, you, yes. if you have the opportunity to watch the series in order, you can see a lot of, a lot of weaknesses in the, uh, in the scripts of season three. Yeah. Well, I'm, you're going to have to send me your list so that I can watch the number f- the four rated episodes. Um, yeah, I'll send you the whole list now with the caveat that these are these are ratings made by a 12 year old. Well, listen, this is a 12 year old smart enough to do production order versus air order. So I'm going to suspect and I'm going to give you the benefit of doubt that these ratings will hold up in accordance with what I think are truly great Star Trek episodes. Oh, oh well. So all right. I'm going to give you that credit. Another funny story that I wanted to get into this podcast was, did you know the story of Gene Roddenberry uh, inserting himself into the theme, which was created by a composer named, with the great film composer name of Alexander Courage? Yes. Uh, he, wrote the, he wrote the Star Trek theme, both with that iconic spooky opening sequence of notes and then that just incredible rising melody that takes over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Alexander Courage wrote this theme and as the composer would have been entitled to a hundred percent of the royalties for the use of that theme in perpetuity. And Gene Ronberry being nothing, if not incredibly aware of where little pockets of money lay in the TV production universe, realized that if he contributed, quote unquote, lyrics to Alexander Courage's theme, he would be entitled to 50% of the royalties of the theme song. And so even though the lyrics are not used, Alexander Courage signed a contract, which unfortunately allowed Roddenberry to write lyrics and claim 50% of the publishing of the song, which he did, which is really kind of unconscionable when you think about it. It's one thing to sort of have scripts that come up from a writer's room and have Gene Roddenberry sort of do his thing in a script. Like you could argue that that's necessary 
and required in order to preserve, you know, the the universe that he's created or that he's kind of monitoring so that it doesn't get kind of run off the rails by the creativity of the writers like that. I can understand, but this move to write lyrics for the theme in a naked grab at 50% of the royalties is just doesn't speak well of the man. We could say, you know, it's also funny in, in, in the next generation is I didn't really realize much like the original series in a way, I don't know if you agree with this sentiment, but it seems that most people interviewed in the book that I read are of the opinion that really the first three seasons are kind of a mess of the next generation. And it's not until season three that things finally start to uh, settle in and become what people think of when they think of that show. Because I think most people think of that as a great show kind of reflexively. I think most people, if you ask them about the original series, will pretty quickly mention kind of either the word cheesy or kitschy or you know they'll they'll have a kind of pejorative term in there even though they love it whereas i think the next generation just has a pretty good reputation as a solid show a great show but it sounds like a lot of people feel that it really took i have to say it's is it coincidental that gene roddenberry probably died around the third season and then the sh- the show was allowed to kind of you know maybe take on more of the traditional rhythms and shapes of a scripted series. I'm not sure, but that certainly seems to be a demarcation point. I'm going to insert my own theory here. Okay. You're, you're familiar with jump the shark phenomenon in which, of course, uh, when a show is believed to basically go off the rails. Yes. I like to postulate the Riker's beard phenomenon, which is what when a show gets that's a, that's season three, isn't it? Yeah, I forget if it's season two or three, but it's the it's the inverse of the jump the shark theory. It's when a show goes from bad to good. Interesting. Is, okay, so and, and if you if you if you were watching a Next Generation uh, a rerun on the BBC channel or something you picked up off of Amazon, and Riker has no beard then you can probably skip that episode. Interesting. Good theory. Now, so we can say, you know, something jumped the shark, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are we going to say? Is it, like it grew, it grew the beard. And bearded. Like it, it, this, this is the point. And this is the point at which the show bearded the Riker. Bearded. The, that's a little clunky, Rick. Are you sure? Grew the no. beard. Doesn't sound better. <laughs> bearded the Riker. It's got to be that. Okay. I mean, it's your system. So I'm working on it. <laughs> bearded the Riker. Yeah, I didn't remember that it took that long to kind of uh, get itself going. But when you read about it, it's it's one of the it's one of the craziest and juiciest stories you can read in um, the Fifty Year Journey Part Two book because there are so many writers that come through this room and try to just get this thing going, and it's just impossible. Like it's just with a cast that talented, it seems so bizarre that it would take so long for them to sort of figure this thing out when I guess ostensibly it should kind of already be figured out, right? Like we're in the same world here, you know, things are operating a little differently. We have a different captain, which it also never kind of struck me until I read in the book that Roddenberry originally wanted a Frenchman for the role, thus Jean-Luc Picard. Like I just, I just always took that as I never even thought about it because Patrick Stewart is Jean-Luc Picard. But 
I'm reading in the book and I'm kind of like smacking my head like, yeah, of course that doesn't really like, why is he called Jean-Luc Picard when he's clearly an Englishman? I'm sure they had some bullshit explanation they stuffed in there, but I, I don't know if he was looking for like a, um, like a, a draw Depardieu type at the time in 86 or whenever that was. But uh, originally he was supposed to be a Frenchman. That's why he's Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> well, he is from France. He is from France in the show. The character is from France. With an English accent. Yeah. <laughs> Unexplained. <laughs> well, is it any, is it any more unexplained that the, you, you uh, take an away team down to a planet on the other side of the galaxy and all the aliens speak English? Well, I mean, I'm sure in some, I mean, you know, you know, that's a pet peeve of mine. So that's why I haven't watched the show Chernobyl because I started to watch the first episode and all the Russians are speaking English. And it, to me, in this day and age, with so many quality actors of every nationality, that's just indefensible to me. Like, I require the verisimilitude of people speaking their own language in a piece of filmed entertainment. So now listen, in the Star Trek or the Next Generation universe, Rick, I mean, do you want them to invent an alien language every time the away team, you know, shuttles down to an alien uh, planet? Like, because, you know, it's Star Trek, so they're going to do the language. Like, they're going to create Klingon in order to speak Klingon. So is it really realistic to ask that of the producing? No, I think the universal translator um, does a lot oh. of uh, business for the show, and I can live with that. Just like I can live with the fact that for some reason there's uh, there's always artificial gra gravity, even when the uh, <laughs> ship is falling to pieces. Yeah, another thing that I, I texted you was watching the original episodes where one of the impressive things about the original series to me and the movies um, is that the peril created in any given episode is often of the apparently inescapable variety. So by that, I mean the problem that the Enterprise or the team faces is usually one in which they're going to all die, right? Like the ship, they can't get off the planet. Like there's no solution. And really through most of the act breaks, you're kind of led through this, uh, this these stories where the peril is, is terminal for the cast members. Yet the episodes begin with Shatner intoning the captain's log, which is always done in the past tense. So doesn't that immediately, I guess my question is A, is it reasonable to expect in a show where we know everyone is going to survive every episode because otherwise we wouldn't have a series? Is it reasonable to say that that device removes a little of the drama, even as it completely helps you just get back in after a commercial break and reset what happened? Did that ever occur to you? I think it's used a lot. Uh, the continuity of it is problematic in a lot of episodes, mm -hmm. but the way that I've always sort of imagined my way around it is to think that the captain's log is much like their narrator in a novel. It's something that whoever the, whoever the captain is, is imagining We're we're imagining what they're thinking. Oh, so you don't, you think that it's more of a, uh, a memory device, not necessarily a formally kept log. Hmm. I understand the need for it to be a formally kept log because of the formalities of, of the, the text of the show. I mean, he does say Stardate Captain's Log. 
So, I mean, to me, that implies this is a narrated log that the captain is delivering for posterity's sake. And the way the device is presented is it's obviously after the fact. So even in act one, you know, they've survived the peril. So I just think it's an interesting thing because obviously it's, it's what, what I, what I love about it is on the one hand, we, we of course know that every episode, Spock, Kirk, McCoy, the enterprise, of course, they're going to get out of the jam and survive. Like that's not really a question, right? Yet we willingly watch these episodes where they're put into life-threatening jeopardy and peril, even though we already know that they're going to get out of it. But the fun is how are they going to get out of it? Right? So the reason, the reason the device works so well is because it never gives away what's to come. It just is resetting for us either where we are and what has occurred. So it, it is kind of a brilliant device, even though if you really picked it out, like you just did with the gravity, uh, it would start to fall apart, I think, as a device. But it works for TV purposes. As contrivances in, in science fiction, I get much more <laughs> exercised over uh, the uh, gravity and the perfectly breathable oxygen atmosphere wherever they go. <laughs> Gravity really bothers you, huh? Really pisses me off. Well, even in the original series, I mean, what do you want them to do in 1965? I mean, are they supposed to like already, you know, what's the episode where they have the, um, I am nomad. I am perfect. The changeling, uh, the changeling, right? I mean, the string is apparent at the top of the screen as they try to float this thing, this floating robot through each scene. Right. Uh, it's kind of like that other episode that I told you I really liked with the really minimalistic sets, the empath. Yeah. Um, Love it. But you can see the strings used to hold them in those torture positions. Uh, so I think to show them sort of floating in an absence of gravity, do you, you, you do float in an absence of gravity, right? Yes. That's what you do. Uh, yeah. But that's the way your mind works. I appreciate that about you, that that would bother you. By the way, the changeling, uh, 12 year old me gave it just three and a half. Three and a half. Interesting. Yeah. I quite like the voiceover work of the changeling itself. I thought that was really expertly done. <laughs> I did. I just watched that the other night. Um, uh, and you know, the, I found it kind of compelling that the changeling is on this, is on this mission to, <laughs> Of course, what's hilarious in the Star Trek universe is the original mission of Nomad was simply to travel the universe and and uh, aggregate some type of data relating to the growth of crops. Like, oh, it was a soil. It was a soil examination tool. So it was supposed to sort of float around the galaxy and test soils uh, so that they could learn which planets might be you know, terraformed or turned into crop growing entities, but then it suffered some sort of collision with a malevolent force, spirit, device, planet. I'm not even sure what, and that it mashed up this device into a unit, which misunderstands its prime directive and now thinks that its mission is to travel the universe and sterilize imperfection of which humans are imperfect, of course. Okay. And it, and it thinks that Kirk is its creator because its creator was named like James Pat, like John Patrick Kirk or something. So it hears the name Kirk and it's like, you are creator. And then Kirk finally outduels the logic, the perfect, supposed perfect logic of Nomad by simply explaining to the device that, well, I'm human 
Therefore, I am imperfect, nomad agrees, but I created you and you're perfect. So that's a contradiction. And then the thing just like blows a gasket and self-destructs. Does it bother you at all that um, that uh, plot line, that uh, plot of the changeling was completely recycled for your uh, favorite Star Trek movie? Uh, <laughs> no. The, In fact, all of the uh, movies end up recycling your, these plot lines. Yeah, all of these movies end up recycling these plot lines. I mean, it's very clear so many times that they just simply do the same story again. I mean, they do that all over the movies, you know? Um, does it bother space, you that... Does it bother Chicago, you... I mean, <laughs> does it bother you that the um, the uh, satellite robot in the Changeling, uh, episode 32, was recycled and used... The, the mechanics were used in episode 59, the Enterprise incident, as the um, Romulan cloaking device. Oh, I did not know that. They I mean they physically use the same prop? Yeah, same prop. No, that doesn't bother me because again, I'm aware of the budgetary limitations under which the series was operating. And I think clever reuse of sets, locations, props is a necessity. That's part of the charm. Apparently 12, 12 year old me felt the same way because episode 32, <laughs> the changeling got three and a half. Uh, but when they turned the nomad, half. they turned nomad into a cloaking device, uh, it got a four. Oh really? Well, that's kind of inconsistent on your rating system. Now, having a is your is your list broken into seasons conveniently? Uh, no. Hmm. Well, uh, you can, a little bit. I can tell the you difference. Can, you can draw a line at twenty-seven, and that's season one, correct? Yeah. Also, just from memory, I know uh, I can so look at I, I can which look at season this. includes the most four-star ratings. Definitely season one. Really? Yeah. Not season two. I, see, I, th I would think it would be season two, but this might be my own personal tastes coming in. There are a lot of fours in season two, and I, but if I, you know, if I have time to look it up, um, I will. Uh, I'll shoot you the statistics. But I see a lot of fours in season one. Could you help yourself? And did, were there any were there any moments where you felt you had to give more than four, like four with an asterisk or an underline or something? I would not. I would not break into my own rating system for. <laughs> Something you wouldn't, like would that. you? It's, see, well, look, see, it's I would. either I would be incapable of doing that. Yeah, the episode's either a four or, or it isn't. It's either great and perfect or it isn't. So there, there's no greater than four. There's no favorite. Like you're not doing this. Is what I, this is what I love about eight or nine or ten year old you is you're kind of taking yourself out of it in a way. It's not about you. It's about a dispassionate rating system that you adhere to rigorously. Yeah. These right? are not my favorite episodes. These are, these are what's good and what's bad. Now, how many, one, how many one rated episodes does your list have? Uh, none in season one. Wow. Um, none in season. We actually don't get to, uh, any one rate is that rate rated episodes until, as I said, the much maligned season three. Okay. Uh, Spock's brain. Mm, that's a one. The children shall lead. Mm. You probably don't know that one. Uh, I, I didn't really watch a lot of season three. I don't think. Yeah. A lot. There's some terrible episodes. Huh? What do you, what do you think? eight or nine or 10 year old you was after in a four star episode of Star Trek. Was it cohesion or setup? What was the thing that was motivating your review? Um, I got to be honest. I think what 
what I got into was um, the drama of the episode, even being, you know, a, a, you know, a junior high school kid, if I mm-hmm. felt emotionally compelling, that was a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, where no man has gone before is, is a, a, you know, a pretty deeply, uh, felt, mm-hmm. uh, philosophical thing. The whole question of Kirk's responsibility toward his friend and mm-hmm. his, one of his junior officers where he mm-hmm. is placed in the untenable position of having yes. to decide whether to kill him or maroon him. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt so bad for Kirk in that episode. Yeah, that's a tough call. Now, did your did your affinity and allegiance lie particularly with one or another of your three main protagonists in the series? Well, as far as the you know the modes of uh, of uh, persuasion in these three characters, mm-hmm. the logos, pathos, ethos, as it were. Yes, I tend to gravitate gravitate towards McCoy's pathos. Yes, um, his his hyper emotionalism. Um, mm-hmm. is something it's that, hard. yeah, I find that, I find that most compelling. Yeah, I, I would agree. I don't, I mean, I don't know if that's what your eight or nine year old self found most compelling. I well, think, I think my favorite episodes, um, uh, are bones centric, our bone centered episodes get ranked very high on this list. Interesting. Yeah. You know, an episode that people flip out about that I think is actually, I would say one of the worst episodes Although it's a curiosity, I, I enjoy it as watching it as a curiosity, much in the way I enjoy watching, you know, oh, the rehash version of them in San Francisco in the Voyage Home film is uh, what, what's the one with the time portal and Joan Collins? Uh, City on the Edge of Forever. City on the Edge of Forever. I mean, that's not a great episode of Star Trek. What did, what did your list give that episode? Four. Really? Do you think that holds up today? I love it. I still think it's, you do? I mean, again, it, uh, it, it, it has the elements of, of what I liked best about the show, which the was impossible never, choice. Yeah. I loved impossible choices. I never liked the show when it was goofy. I like mm-hmm. the, the morose ending. Um, mm-hmm. I think the time travel is fascinating. I think the, to me, the whole, the guardian on the edge of forever and that, <laughs> that time travel mm-hmm. device, I, I always found it kind of, I found it spooky. Um, mm-hmm. I love that episode. Yeah. You know, it's another word for it. Implausible, but okay. (laughs) You know, like Spock stands there with his tricorder and sort of perfectly dials in the day, week, month, year in which to, in which to jump through. Like, Mm -hmm. okay. They only have 50 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's just kind of like, so the, the young me is sort of fixated on, which I think is sort of telling, right? I want, I want order. I want, um, I want, I want sense and and cohesion. I, I don't like and didn't like obvious jumps of logic that see, disrupted. See, you claim to be persuaded by uh, by pathos, but but you're logos. You're so Spock. What does that make me? That's Spock. Yeah, probably, probably. I think. I'm just saying that's the kind of thing that bothered me as a kid. Like, I didn't like to see obvious holes in plots. And to me, you know, that whole episode hangs upon a just ridiculous conceit. Whereas I have no problem at all with like the ship is traveling through an area and, you know, a force passes through the ship and it renders 
you know, Elizabeth Daner and, you know, Dave from 2001 with ESP powers and godlike capabilities. Like there's no hole there, you know, but literally the hole that like these people jump through to get to another century just strikes me as ludicrous. So the ludicrousness of it is just a little too towards the 10 side of the dial. Whereas if it's around seven, eight, I can probably let it go. All right. Well, um, at some point after this recording, I'll send you some, some, uh, some uh, two rated episodes with really bad time travel. uh, Mm. Yeah. I think that's where I get tripped up a lot is some of the time travel stuff, which they were so in love with. And I guess there's so many episodes, uh, you know, like there's the one where they're back in like the Al Capone era. Right. Yeah. And I don't, are they using the same device to get there? Cause I know they reused it in a movie. No, what they, what happens is they go to visit an alien planet that a, oh, right. a, right. uh, a book about the, um, <laughs> right. the 1920s mafia area era had been left right. behind by a previous, uh, uh-huh. uh, by a previous mission and the, <laughs> the aliens of the planet were highly adaptive. Um, mm. and so they, so as one, as one does, they organize their entire society around the book. Around the the gangland, um, the gangland hierarchies culture. and cultures of of nineteen twenties Earth. Um, and, and is, that, is that a highly is that a highly rated episode by Young Rick Brown? Uh, no, I'm, I I don't see it right off the uh, uh, huh. without uh, spending a minute to look for it. But I it's it's pretty mediocre as far as a piece yeah. of the action. Right. Oh my god! You gave it a four. Didn't you? A four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See. See, this Young is what Rick I was Brown. trying to warn you about earlier, <laughs> that uh, there's just that there's there's not necessarily going to be a consistency between 12 year old me and 51 year old me. The I told you to watch The Empath. True, because I think it's one of the greatest episodes. I loved it. On here. I thought it, gets it was a three. I thought it was brilliant. I thought the minimalism of it was great. Um, I thought it was otherworldly and and weird. Um and I liked the diaphanous sort of plot. You know, there's like, I think I like the episodes where it's sort of either rigorously plotted or very loosely plotted. Um, I think it's the a, writers. I, I think it's such a great episode because of the, because of the way that it sets up this, uh, the, you know, the, the triangle, the triangle of, of Kirk, a Spock and bones. Mm-hmm. And then yes. when Kirk, um, is sort of taken out of the action and, and Spock and bones have to sort of, again, they're using either, uh, they have to fight between whether logic or emotion is going to, Mm -hmm. um, prevail. And what, what Spock has to do in order to move the plot forward is a really interesting, uh, uh, writing and very emblematic of the show. I I love the impasse, but this 12 year old gave it a three. (laughs) Now, see for me, I have a reflexive dislike of any episode that takes Spock away from me into uncharted territory. I don't like that. That's not what I'm there for. What about, you, know, so I don't, you mean like episodes where like Spock is either he's laughing yeah. or. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that. Falling in love. Like I don't enjoy any of those episodes. Okay. I, I want, I think to me, like a perfect Star Trek episode is one in which the character's are true to themselves. And in doing so, we achieve the resolution. Now, in that sense, I do think the end of uh, City on the Edge of Forever 
is really compelling because the way they film it, the way they freeze it, it, it it's really well done. And it's the characters acting true to their essential nature. So when it's like, even though I like the episode where they're all kind of like, you know, where, where Kirk and Spock uh, are the only two people that are aware that through some transporter issue, they've beamed onto an alternative reality version of the enterprise where assassination is the means to ascend to the captain's chair. Right. I don't like that. I, I like, I can appreciate the ticking clock of that type of a plot, uh, but it really bothers me to look at a, um, a bearded Spock, you know, laughing mostly because it's not something Nimoy does great. Like he's fen- phenomenal in the lane of Spock. Uh, I would argue t- childhood me also really enjoyed him in mission impossible, which he then went on to have a role in after star Trek was canceled. Another Desi Lu production, same lot, same sound stage. He just had to, you know, go to stage nine instead of stage 12. You remember he was, he was kind of the, I don't know if he was the munitions expert or the makeup. I think it was the makeup expert for, for a season or two on Mission Impossible. He did that very well, but like laughing overt libidinous Nimoy, that's harder to, harder, harder to digest. Okay. For this, for this young man anyway. Um, all right. Well, listen, that's, that's two hours of track, Rick. Now what I actually need, here's a task I'd like to set you. I, 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 this is, this is your mission. Should you, should you decide to accept it? Mm-hmm. It may be a five-year mission. I'm not sure, but I think what the listeners would really love is if you starting tonight rewatched all of the three seasons of original Star Trek and kept a new ratings system. Oh, And, and where would you, where would the episodes fall? Mm-hmm. And what, um, what do you think the difference is? Do you and I think, is part of the idea that I would do it in pencil. Well, absolutely. Okay. I mean, do it however you see fit, but I think, and I don't even, I kind of almost don't even want you to have the original one present. Oh, you don't do want this. me influenced. No, I just want you to, to greet them anew. And where would you, where would you rank them using this system? Okay. I accept I that. that that'd be, I think that'd be interesting to do. Mm-hmm. And then we can uh, compare some notes. Okay. I like it. And have you back on. Okay. Yeah. Now, I know you're very long here, so uh, the only other thing I had on my list was whether you wanted to cover Columbo's Cinematic Universe. <laughs> Columbo's Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. I mean, of course, we have the two, although I hesitate to call it two, as, as you know. In my mind, there's only one Shatner appearance on Columbo because I don't, I've never even seen, I don't even watch late Columbo, nineties Columbo, nineties ABC Columbo. I I don't, I don't, that's not Canon. So I I don't watch that. And I know Shatner did another episode, but I've not seen it. I won't see it. I don't enjoy those. Those are not Columbo Canon. So to me, Shatner appeared once. Nimoy obviously appeared once. And I'm sure some of the ancillary characters appeared, although I wouldn't know off the top of my head. You probably have more information about that than I do. Well, I'll mention a few things about about Star Trek actors going on to Columbo. One is that the the Columbo season two episode with Leonard Nimoy, I find it a I find Nimoy kind of mediocre in a really great episode. 
Mm. I think he's great in that. That's where he's the uh, surgeon who places the dissolving suture in the heart of his mentor in order to kill him surreptitiously. Right. I think he's okay. It's a good use of him. Yeah. It's a good use of him. I think he's okay. Uh, And Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure how much of sort of his his ability to portray psychopathy uh, and Mm -hmm. lacking emotion uh, was part of him being cast into that episode. Uh, Probably, probably most. Anyway, I think the episode is greatly written. I just, and I don't hate Nimoy. I just think that he is. You're right. I think what you're reacting to is unlike most Columbo protagonists. Yeah. He's not chewing the scenery and having the time of his life opposite Peter Falk. Yeah. He remains the reticent, withdrawn internal character that he is. And in that sense, he's not a great Columbo murderer. Right. I would totally agree. Now, on the other hand, when Shatner comes on, I think it's, I think it's (laughs) season six is the one where he plays a, a TV detective kills his manager for his, his, well, she's using by the him. end. She's 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 effectively blackmailing right. him. Now, in that right. episode, I find Shatner really good, and the yeah. story below average. I would agree. I would agree. I think Shatner is having a deliriously good time, yeah. and it's a great use of his hamminess, and probably alone amongst many Shatner things, uh, unless we start talking about like some things much later in life where he does have some perspective on himself. I think it sends him up really well. Like, I think he's in on the joke in a great way. Yeah. Playing this like hammy self-involved TV detective who's doing mono Ed mono duel with Columbo. Really good episode. Um, but I agree. Really silly plotting the whole bizarre construct of like watching the ball game at his uh, set. The, the guy who works on the set with him, who he drugs and sort of passes out in a very unbelievable sort of passing out. The guy can't even like, plausibly act passed out on a couch <laughs> you know it's like his eyeball he's like he's trying not to blink so much you know it just it doesn't really work so i agree not not a great not a greatly plotted episode but a great performance by shatner yeah I, and also kind of a weird one when he's when he's in the restaurant and he's um he he's when he when he kills her he shoots her in the where he's wearing a ski mask yeah. that's so weird and i think it's tim carrey isn't it the great tim carrey behind the counter that that character actor i don't know that guy but you're yeah. probably right Oh, the only other thing I was going to say is that Shatner does appear in 90s ABC Columbo, as does Sally Kellerman. But as we've True. been told, these the uh, <laughs> that that version of the show, there's an editorial policy against uh, against talking well, about them. And I will adhere to that. Well, listen, th- I do want to watch the Faye Dunaway episode because I, I just read a book about um, all the Columbo episodes and it. Like you, it, it gives a rating to every episode of Columbo. Mm-hmm. And the only one of the 80s, 90s ABC Columbos that it even gives a passing grade to, and it gives a very good grade, I believe. That's like the, the nomenclature is, you know, very good or excellent. The uh, um, the one other note that I want to make sure that I get in on, again, this is on the the Columbo episode, the one the, the Shatner with, that we're just talking about is... Um, uh, character appearance by Walter Koenig. Now he plays one of the um one of the detectives at the near the beginning of the show that is helping Oh right. Yes. um <laughs> helping uh Columbo sort of put the clues together. All right. Um, That's right. There's a That's great right. piece on YouTube that I'll send you with Walter Koenig talking about uh getting cast in this role and in particular his interaction with um Bill Shatner off 
off screen. Um, Let me guess. He's got complaints. Well, they don't appear together in the show. It's not clear to me whether Walter Koenig in 1978, this is, so this is going to be between the original show <laughs> right. and the movies. And right. it's not clear whether Walter Koenig is being cast because he's just an available no, actor. He's being cast because Shatner's in it. Come on, of course. Well, like great. I said, they don't appear together. Hmm. Uh, and according to Walter Koenig, there was there there was an offstage moment in which they both got on the uh, the cart that took them from the soundstage over to the cafeteria. And <laughs> yeah. in classic uh, Shatner superciliousness, <laughs> according to Walter Koenig, Shatner had no idea who he was. Come on, that's not, that can't be true. He said, that's hilarious. He, he I love said, that. Uh, he said, I started up a conversation with, with, with Bill Shatner and he didn't even know my name. So, um, but as far as working, I didn't work with Bill. Um, Bill was in other scenes. I remember we took a trolley, or uh, a little go-kart together to go to lunch. And that was about the, and he didn't talk to me because that was the time when it was between the series and the, in the movies, and I don't think he remembered my name. Walter, listen, I love you. I loved you, but th this is not true. Give me a break. Well, listen, I appreciate you joining me. This has been an excellent conversation. It's everything I could have hoped for as we dive deep into the Star Trek metaverse. And uh, I will be eagerly uh, looking forward to your 2021 slash 2022 review because I don't expect you to get through all 79 original episodes in the next few weeks. So you do have some time. You have some runway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Put your gravity boots on, strap them on, get in front of that computer or TV and start from the beginning all over again. I think a revised list is going to benefit from my years of wisdom. We'll see. Either that or you haven't changed much since nine. We'll see. <laughs> Twelve. Richard, live long and prosper. Loved it. All right, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Be seeing you. Bye-bye.